0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to everyone joining us for the shortlist episode of Read Smart, the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I'm Razia Iqbal. For those who may have missed it, the 2023 shortlist has just been announced live from Cheltenham Literature Festival. And what a list it is. The shortlist was announced at an event which also featured a conversation between this year's chair of judges, Frederick Studeman, and last year's winner, Catherine Rundell. You can hear the event in full here, including the moment when the shortlist was announced.
1: Hello. Welcome uh, to the Bailey Gifford Prize event for this Sunday evening. Thank you all of you for coming along. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the Bailey Gifford Prize and we are all in for a treat this evening. Um, This is the 25th anniversary year of the Bailey Gifford Prize. It was started in 1999 by uh, two people, one of whom is here tonight, which I'm absolutely thrilled about, Dottie Irving. Uh, The first winner was Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver, an amazing, an amazing book and tonight Uh, you're going to hear from the most recent winner. But without any further ado, let's get to the first stage of this evening. You're in for a huge treat. I'd like to welcome to the stage Frederick Studeman, who's the FT Literary Editor and the Chair of our Judges for the 2023 Award, and the winner of 2022's Bailey Gifford Prize, the brilliant Catherine Rundell, please. Thank you for
2: Good evening. Uh, th- th- it's wonderful to see so many people here on a s- Sunday evening coming to talk about um, one of our greatest poets, um, John Donne, who's the subject of fantastic... Let me just put that there. But if you don't... For those of you who haven't read this, I would really and I'm not doing a sales pitch, it's not <laughs> my job is normally to be very critical, um, is this wonderful book written by Catherine Rundell, Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne. Um, it's an extraordinary story about someone who I, I'm venturing, I mean, I'll say for myself, John Donne and I probably parted company when I was age 17 or 18, and moved on from being asked to uh, be made to learn, Uh, the teenage giggles around the various ways that in his era, the letter S and F were rendered in typography. For those of you who've read The Flea, you'll recognize (laughs) what I'm on about, so we don't need to drift off too much into um, his playful uh, ways with writing about sex, but that was something he did quite a lot. But um, I think it's fair to say, and this is something you achieve marvelously in this book because I should also just say it's brilliantly written, actually. It's, really, it's written in a very creative way. It's a different way of writing a biography, actually. It's sort of almost done like, let's say. But I think it's um, very unusual. This is someone who's largely being... Uh, you're probably going to challenge me on this, but forgotten in many ways. And yet, whenever you hear the phrase, no man is an island or for whom the bell tolls and so many other things, he's sort of still with us. Um, uh, we think of him as a poet, but actually, as you explain, he's much, much, he was much, much more. Uh, he was a convert. He was a convict. He was a courtier. He was an MP, lawyer and uh, diplomat of sorts. He went from being a sort of bit of a Jack the Lad wildcard who ends up in the establishment, totally in the centuries, the Dean of St. Paul's. It's an extraordinary life just in itself, and that's before you get to the, to the writing. And it's all taking place at a time when the whole of England is in—not just England, actually Europe—because he also has a sort of flit over to the continent um, just on the eve of the Thirty Years' War. It's an extraordinary time of transition from Elizabeth to James I, from the, you know one world, the, one world to the next. Uh, so a lot of rich stuff. But I would still say he's probably someone who hasn't been on everyone's mind. So. I guess the opening question to you is why John Donne? Where did your obsession begin with this extraordinary character? And then I also want to know I'm still trying to work out the super infinite. So, can you, two for one, can you explain both of those,
3: Catherine? So, I think I have always loved John Donne. Uh, My first experience with John Donne was when I was a little child, my parents, who loved poetry in general um, and realised that their children did not, used to pay us to memorise poetry. We got 50 pence per John Donne poem. And um, that at the time was quite a lot. This was the very early 90s. And uh, I had no other source of income. And I had very expensive taste in small plastic dog figurines called Puppy in My Pocket. Um, and so the only way to earn them was to memorize poetry. So I was a child with a lot of John Donne in my head. Not those of you who know John Donne well, all of it. Um, not the licentious verse, not the very explicit sexual stuff, but the satires, the songs, uh, some of the sonnets. And even though at the age of nine, I did not understand him. I understood that there was something in him that I would later understand. And I understood that there was something about him that made him different from all the other great poets we were learning. I loved him for his electric originality. And then when I became an adult, I loved him because I think he is the greatest poet of desire of certain kinds of love in the English language, done sort of erupted from a tradition that was still very, um, very courtly, very in some ways medieval of its poetry, that imagined women on pedestals, that uh, compared women relentlessly to flowers, or um, Dunn was born into the world in which Sir Philip Sidney writes in one of his poems that his mistress's shoulders are under two white doves. And then, um, in a later poem, that his mistress's cheeks are under two white doves. And then, later, Sir Walter Riley writes about Queen Elizabeth, that she is a whitened dove. And you do start to feel like other birds are available. (laughs) But Dunn stepped into that milieu and said, it is possible that your love is like a dove, but it's tremendously unlikely. (laughs) It's so much more likely that your love is strange and sometimes bitter and erotic and vertiginous and unwieldy in the way that the human heart is unwieldy. And so when he wrote about love, he wrote about love using imagery that was far more extreme than anyone else. So where other people might Uh, call your enemy's mistress, you might be like, well, she's sweaty. John Donne would say, my enemy's mistress has sweat unto the scum on, he would say, a a boiling pot that is boiling leather to be eaten during a famine in Europe, specifically. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This man was not like other men. This man said, your love is probably an extraordinary and overtaking thing. And then, of course, he wrote wild, rakish sex poetry, some of which is spectacularly good. And he also wrote true, true love poetry. He said, this ecstasy does unperplex. The idea that maybe, at its best, love and sex might be a way of answering a question that human language cannot articulate but can understand. And I think for that reason, when the time came to write about him, I wanted to write something that would salute that extreme quality. And that, to answer your other question, is why it's called super infinite. Because John Donne, it's a term of his own, Donne loved to add this prefix super to words that did not need intensifying. So super infinite, super miraculous, super eternal, super dying he had a sense of humanity as something that is frequently placed at the very edge of itself, something that was a being of extremes. And his work wrestles with that. He doesn't find it easy, but he finds it true.
2: Wow. But to, just coming back a bit, where did he come, where does John Donne come from? Where? I mean, he comes when does he first appear? Did the, I mean, It's very interesting in the book you, you wrestle with the fact we know quite a lot of certain phases of his life and then, as you say, he sort of fades out or the trail of breadcrumbs, I think, is an image you use, sort of diminishes. But just where, who is he, where is he from?
3: So what we do know, we know he was born in 1572 on Bread Street with a view of St. Paul's Cathedral, which was the place where he would later work and be buried, which is niche. And we know that he had an upbringing that was Catholic. If if anyone knows one thing about John Donne in this country, the thing they tend to know after No Man Is An Island is that he was born a Catholic and died a Protestant. Died not just a Protestant, but one of the most powerful Protestants in England. His childhood was bedecked by grief and horror because he came from a family that was quite prominent in their Catholicism. His mother was the great-great-grandniece of Sir Thomas More and they had a lot of belief in the theater of Catholicism. So um, he was probably taken to see his great uncle hung, drawn, and courted for being a, a Catholic priest. We know that he was taken into the Tower of London when another one of his uncles, who was also a Catholic priest, was arrested. And his mother, wanting to pretend that they were just going on a family outing, took her son to the Tower of London along with another Jesuit to exchange information about the Jesuit network with her brother, who was in prison, which had they been discovered, Would have put them all in prison. He was extraordinary in that way. And they had this, there's this famous story about her, the the mother, that um, she used to carry. uh, Thomas More was famously decapitated, and Thomas More's brilliant, brave daughter, Margaret Roper, had herself rowed down the river to collect the head from the executioner. She bribed him. And then people said, John Donne's mother carried that head in her handbag, essentially, when she went traveling, which she didn't, but only because she didn't have access to the head. Um, Margaret Roper spiced and bottled the head, but she did give a tooth of Sir Thomas More's head to the two brother Jesuits, his uncles. And there was a day when both of them wanted to go off in pilgrimage, essentially, to spread the Jesuit word. And according to the family, the tooth spontaneously bifurcated. So they could each take half a Thomas More tooth with them, which if you think about it, they were definitely chiseling that into. Like that's, there's no way that happened. But so that was his background, strange, uh, quite electric vision of Catholicism covered in death.
2: Very creative. Also, I mean, where does the right, I mean, as much as one can ever say where the muse comes from?
3: As far as we can tell, not really. A family of brave and engaged people, a family of intelligent people. They didn't have much money. He had a small inheritance that he then tore through in his young rakery days and then had nothing left. But as far as we can tell, Dunn is a a volcanic anomaly erupting from that family.
2: Mm. And the times that he is sort of coming into adult, well, you know. Childhood, adult, young adulthood are, as we as you've touched on, sort of very uh, tumultuous, violent mm-hmm. times. I mean, his own brother ends up uh, dies in a prison, I think, for shielding yes. a Catholic priest. Is it exactly a Catholic not. priest? Yes. So, so, so it's very, yeah. very close. But sort of generally, it is a time. I mean, how. It, 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 it seems the whole place is in in, in tumult, mm-hmm. really, is that fair to say? I mean, it's even violence. Writers are violent to one another. The, the knifing is coming from other writers, not from critics or anything like that. They are killing each other in taverns. And um, But it's also where one phrase in a sonnet can put you on the wrong side of power from the monarch and that's it, right? And that's it. Yeah.
3: Exactly that. So, a very strange time to be alive, an intense and unwieldy time. As you said, a lot of poets murdering each other, um, a surprising number. Wyatt killed a man, Ben Jonson killed a man, uh, Marlowe, and, and of course, um, many people were themselves murdered. So, there's that. There's plague. There's plague racing in and out of the city and killing sometimes up to an eighth of a population of a borough and then leaving again. And there is a sense of a a state which spies and surveils its citizens. So when you read any of the letters of this period, you have to remember that those letters would all be subject to the risk of being intercepted. And there's no post, so letters are passed by messenger boy, by someone who's going in that direction. And so often Donne's letters have a kind of hastiness to them and a kind of repressed quality that there is something that he is not saying. So there's that vision of Dunn. And I think the plague is a really interesting one to think about because you have to remember with Dunn, he is living at a time when you should expect the possibility of death almost daily. They said with the plague that you could dine with your neighbors and sup with Christ. You could die in half a day and if you got the plague you would be boarded up inside your house with your entire family and a piece of paper nailed to the door saying may God have mercy on your soul and that feeling and of course they had things like social distancing, they had had stewards of the plague who had three foot long sticks, wands they were called, that would be used to swuck people away who weren't keeping uh, about three foot apart. Um, so this sense of precipitousness of decline. And, you know, he writes in this extraordinary sermon, he had a bleak quality to him, a, a fury. And in one of the sermons, he writes about how during the times of plague, because there were so many people to be buried, they would have to dig up the grave shortly after someone had been put in to add more bodies, and in that way, the decomposing bodies entered the air, and he said, brothers would breathe in sisters and mothers would breathe in sons. The closeness to death, I think, is one of the things that gives the life of it such strange intensity.
2: And it's something you write about in the book quite a bit, about his um, that whole pervasive sense of decay, of dread. He himself... Uh, he has a mori around him, he's very... He, he even towards the end of his life, without wanting um, to give too much away towards the end, he anticipates his own death to mm-hmm. the point of... I think, is it the only monument that survived the fire of the original St. Paul's, which is um, it was one erected uh, after he died, and yet he had designed it down to the last sort of millim- millimetre of how he wanted it to, to look, and he staged, I mean, you say, the theatricality. Um, and this, in the way he also wrote about it that it, it, it one of the most moving things right towards the end of the book that he himself says he doesn't fear death, so death is, is, is he likens it to a translation to mm. a better language yeah. or better book or something exactly so gosh. so that was being totally part of his world. but tell me how was when he started writing he breaks through he's part of a group in a way, isn't he i mean they're sort of young blokes around town, if you like. How is that received? How? What's this? Is he a sort of star attraction? Is he someone that you go to here in a pub uh, perform or, or what? How is
3: Tell us that work, you know, how does it... That young Dunn was writing at a time when to be young and to be educated was absolutely to write poetry. And poetry was everywhere. And poetry could be so many things. It could be a love note, of course, it could be propaganda, it could be an invoice, it could be uh, a form of blasphemy, a form of perfidy, it could get you arrested, it could uh, transform your life, it could ruin your life, but mostly... So one of the questions you get asked a lot if you've been working on Dunn for a decade is, uh, was he really sleeping with all those women? And the answer is almost certainly not. Uh, Those poems that he was writing, the famous sex poems, you know, um, To His Mistress Going to Bed or The Flea, those poems are largely probably written for a small group of hyper-educated young men. But Dunn was different from them. He said, I sing not siren-like, for I am harsh. And he was famous at the time for breaking rhythm. Ben Johnson said, done for not keeping of accent, by which he meant metrical rhythm deserved hanging. Um, and so he was, he was erupting, diverging, twisting what already existed and making it new. And some people were very furious. Um, Later, much later, a couple of hundred years later, Alexander Pope rewrote his poetry to make it rhyme and scan. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, so, so that's a Dunn who is aware of his significant difference in the way he is approaching one of the main pastimes of the day. Um, but the idea of him as this great rake tearing his way through the women of London is uh, probably something that exists only in, in Dunn's imagination. Right. But-
2: we have the writing, and you you write quite precisely and quite a length about it, and it, it is... I mean, how to put it, it's not always easy, to, to be honest, mm. is what you say. I mean, you say it's actually almost... Was it deliberately difficult? I mean, you you praise it for being difficult, and that you say the pleasure of unlocking it is like cracking a safe, and it, it, it actually forces you to reread and reread It's sort of... I think you say it's, he's almost shouting at you, pay attention, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, stop. Get out of the daily humdrum and, and engage. But was that something he was deliberately doing or was that just what everyone was doing at the time? Or is it just...
3: I think it was just him. So this is a thing. I, I teach a little bit at Oxford, and when I was teaching Dunn, one of the things that my students found was that he was harder than anyone else. Some of that is a couple of hundred years will do that to you. But it was also deliberately recalcitrant and deliberately layered every stanza is meant to have something beneath each sentence, and sometimes more and more. And there are, so for instance, even one of his most playful and silly poems, uh, The Flea, if you think of it, um, it's the one that imagines a flea being first on his body and then on a woman's body. And it goes, mark but this flea and mark in this how little that which thou denies me is. Me it sucked first and now sucks thee, and in this flea are two bloods mingled be. So that's one joke. Then he would expect you to know that in French, flea is pousse virgin is pucelle, in English, puzzle is whore, and puzzle is a rendition of the French for maidenhead. He would expect you to know all of those things at once and to recognize that there's a kind of bilingual pun. And he would expect you to know, which was what was made very clear in the later printings, which was that he uses the long S that, uh, or rather his son does, that looks a lot identical to an F. They're almost typographically identical. So, me, it sucked first and now sucks thee, um, has a very deliberate different meaning. So he would always expect a poem to be something that you should not just look at, that you should pick up and unpeel. And it was in part because he had this insistence on using the full untrammeled force of your intelligence. He writes about it all the time, about having a hydroptic, immoderate desire of learning, about having a riddling, labyrinthine soul. Dunn believed that we have in us that which needs singular expression, and it will take all of your intelligence and focus and attention to lay it out. And he demands it of us. And you see it, in fact, in some of his later sermons where he says, Scarcely did any man ever sleep between uh, Newgate and Tyburn, between the place of imprisonment, Newgate, and the place of execution, Tyburn. And yet we spend this whole life asleep, awake. And this version of Dunn, this vision of Dunn, who wanted people to be sharper and faster, that was his... Hunger.
2: Mm. And that's almost, would you say that is something that where you could say that would be quite relevant, quite modern for us? I think it's one of the reasons. It's almost get off the the, (laughs) the scrolling (laughs) and just sort of.
3: Yeah. And of course, a necessary call for the time as well, because it was a profound and intense time. It was a time of profound corruption. It was a time of, you know, the court especially was a kind of snake pit and one could get lost. Mm-hmm. And he insists on on a kind of rigor.
2: Mm-hmm. We'll come to the thing about the, 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 he didn't get lost. I mean, you sort of managed to sort of survive a bit, but just tell me how popular was his verse in terms of, um, uh, not just his verse, but also his sermons and his writings. I mean, he, he attracted quite a crowd. I mean, should we be thinking of him? We, we, we probably now approach him through the canon and, and what, you know, through standard formal education, et cetera, But are we talking of someone who, I don't know, is it too glib to say sort of a John Lennon type, someone who kind of, you know, gave voice to a whole time or a feeling?
3: Yes. Um, I think we should think of John. Exactly yeah, yeah, hordes. Like yeah. so so not for the poetry. So two different things. The poetry was written, passed to friends, and then each friend would pass it to another friend, so it would ripple outwards until he became one of the most copied out poets of his entire era. So was an influence. So, right. That. So he got right. So he became famous accidentally in that sense. Yeah. And and of course mm-hmm. Anne, his wife, will have known that when she met him. So that's quite a key part of that part of his life. And then when he became a sermonizer, the book opens with a description of when he was preaching at Lincoln's Inn as the dean of St. Paul's. So many people came to see him that it says you know, there was a great crush of people and two or three were taking up dead for the time, which doesn't mean dead, it just means unconscious. But you would get hordes of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people would come. People would stand outside St. Paul's to try to hear what they could hear of him. A kind of... um, a kind of thirst for done was something that he had to contend with by the end of his life.
2: Right. Well, you you said earlier on, and you've said in the book and elsewhere. You do you, you qualified, or you basically go out there and say he's the greatest love poet in the English mm-hmm. language, which is quite a claim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, he is partly a contemporary of Shakespeare, but you're going to put him ahead of all of. The, I mean. Ah.
3: I am. Yes, okay. uh, or at least, so I don't say love, I say sex. Sex and desire, not necessarily love. I think that up there, you're fighting Shakespeare. That's no. a big fight. No. But sex, a, a vision of the bodily, um, you know, where he says, he has this extraordinary thing where he says, uh, difference of sex no more we knew than our guardian angels do, which was an idea that angels transcend gender, the idea of. of a, a, a unification of two people. And then, also, I would argue that the love poetry gives Shakespeare a run for its money, certainly. I'm not sure I'd come straight out with love. Yeah. But, but for instance, he wrote a... Probably one of the reasons she married him. He wrote a poem for Anne Moore, his, um, the woman that he married when she was 17 and he was in his early 20s. A very wealthy woman he was marrying up. And- exactly. So he was... He was from a more liminal social position than her. She was Sir George Moore's daughter. She would have been one of the darlings of the court. Um, she was said to be very beautiful, that we don't know if she was, but we don't have any pictures of her. Uh, we have a picture of her father. So if she looked like him, she had a very strong nose. Um, but we know that he wrote for her because although we have only one poem that he heads as being for her, um, we know that he wrote because he plays on her name more and more so, he wrote, for instance, um, the poem Love's Growth, and Love's Growth begins, um, I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was, because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swore my love was infinite, if spring made it more, and that more is for her. And so, although, hundreds of millions of people have read that poem since, and although you can get a mug with his face on it that says, let's get metaphysical, <laughs> although he is so famous, and although he was so famous then, it was different for her. And that will have been an extraordinary thing, and whether or not it was worth it is something the book thinks about a lot. Is it worth it, marrying the greatest desire poet in the English language? If you then, after 12 babies die in childbirth at the age of 32, the book thinks Maybe not, maybe love is not enough, but it was remarkable. Yeah.
2: Just out of interest, who, who gets the number three spot in your ranking of great English
3: love person? Ooh, e Cummings, maybe? What? Franco Harv, we Allowed Americans? Okay. I think we, could we, T.S. Eliot, but not I really very not. broad-minded.
2: We? <laughs> <laughs> great. Wanted to come just towards the end of his, I mean, the, the bit where he, translates transitions to being this big public figure, actually. He gets to be the dean of St. Paul's, which must be one of the biggest jobs going. And you also explain just what that entails. I mean, it is sort of he's finally made it, really. He's someone who's always worried about money. But when you get a job like that, it comes with loads of benefits. Let's put it that way. But he also becomes, in a way that you describe it, much more he's I would one to say, depressive or sort of more... I mean, he is quite. The, the prose gets heavier, yeah. the thoughts darker, he distances himself from his friends. I mean, he's, he, he's not thinking, but he's moved on from sex and he's into other realms. Isn't?
3: It's true that when he gets older, it's one of the fascinations of Dunn that he gets harsher and harsher as he gets older, as perhaps all of us get a little bit more exhausted by humanity, but there are some things he maintains. So, for instance, you get in Dunne, near the end of his life, some moments of surprising dark. I suppose one thing you, I should briefly address, Dunne was famously suicidal. Dunne wrote the first full-length treatise on suicide in the English language, which argues that suicide might not in all contexts be a sin. And that was at the time blasphemous, because as you will know, the ironical self-defeating penalty for trying to commit suicide was death. but a bad death and you got some people's corpses were staked out at a crossroad some were sort of pulled through a, by a cart through a street so not great but so there's that vision of dun the dun that wants to kill himself the dun that says i feel the pull of mine own sword so there's that dun and then there's the dun that you get in some of the later sermons which have in them such sorrow and write about K and write about horror and at the wedding sermon of one of his best best friends, a man called Henry Goodyear, who he knew when he was a young rake, Henry asked him to preach the sermon for his daughter's marriage and they may well have expected some form of a spark of that old John Dunn, of that wild boy and what they get is Dunn standing up and saying, Marriage is but fornication sealed by law. We sin and sin and sin and rise only to sin again. Congratulations to the happy couple. (laughs) So there's that, that's done, and there's that harsh done, but I think you have to, the key thing about done is you have to put alongside that done, that angry done, at the same time, in the same years, right to the last day of his life, a kind of harsh generosity. So he also stood up in a pulpit at a time when there was some Puritan debate about the morality of laughter and said, not to laugh, that is a stupidity, that is the contempt. And he also was a dun who was vulnerable to his audience at a time when it, potentially your religion could feel like quite a dictatorial space. Dunn offers up this this vivid sense of himself as vulnerable. He says, he talks about how he cannot control his mind in prayer. He says, you know, I, I summon God and his angels, and when they are in the room, I neglect God and his angels for a straw under my knee, a fly in my eye, a chimera, a carriage in the street, a something, a nothing, this idea that he is admitting to his congregation his own failings was rare for the time. So I think when you have to think about Dunn, you have to think about these two duns. One of them is the Dunn that says, we are a disaster. There is a dun that says, um, only man of all envenomed things does work upon itself with inborn sting. So you have to have that Dunn. But then you also have to have the done that says, compared unto a man, the world itself is too little a thing. The world itself is a dwarf. This idea that each person is larger than the planet on which they stand because of their own infinity. And this idea of somebody who believed in love as transformation and sex as transformation and who also believed in the interconnectedness of humanity and that, for someone who thought of us as both essentially a miracle and a disaster, a disastrous miracle. Um, The fact that, so in fact, yes, so, so that one great thing that we all know about him, no man is an island, he's not a poem. He wrote it when he thought he was dying. He often thought he was dying. This time, someone told him he thought he was dying. So, so you know, he had, he had data. <laughs> and, and a doctor came to him and said, you have about eight days to live. So he sat and he wrote the things he thought humanity needed to know about itself. And there are two that really stand out. One of them is his sense of illness as the only lonely place. The truest form of loneliness is illness because when you are in pain, you do not even have access to yourself. And I think anyone who has ever been seriously ill will know that so profoundly to be true. And he asks, therefore, for more sympathy for the ill. But the other thing, he says, is the no man is an island. And it offers this sense that if there is meaning, it is only from each other. And it has a harshness to it. Um, it goes, uh, no man is an island and of himself. Every man is a, a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a whole manor house of myself or thine own were. Every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee."
2: Am I right in thinking this actually began life as a PhD thesis and you've written it three times, is that right?
3: (laughs) Yes. So it was a PhD thesis, PhD theses famously very dull. Mine has been read by my supervisor, my two examiners, and my father, who I made proof jacket. No one else, and I hope no one else ever will, because it is so tedious. Um, So there's that. So then I rewrote it over about five years, and I rewrote it and rewrote it, and the first version was very much longer and more academic. This is as short as I could make it. I would have liked it to be even shorter, but it's about 70,000 words. The first one was about twice that. And there is a thing, anyone who has ever done any research-based job will know this. If you work really hard to find something out, you are going to force people to know it, even if they... (laughs) really don't want or need to. And then what you get, with a lot of academic writing, including much of my own, is you can hear the little faint patter of someone patting themselves on the back for that piece of work. And my first draft was just a roar of little back-patting. So I rewrote it to try to make it more what he would have needed, more hungry, and then rewrote it with... I write children's fiction and the discipline is the same. The discipline is the discipline of the vivid and the discipline of does it matter? And I think that was the rewriting. Um, so yeah, it is very little like my PhD. My PhD is thankfully, hopefully, buried forever.
2: I know, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's in, a well, well, <laughs>
3: it's
2: in a good place, I'm sure. Um, I mean, just tell us a bit about, so this was your, you, as you say, you, you've written Many children's books won awards for them. This you now then ventured with this into the world of you're probably going to hate me for say adult non fiction, <laughs> but that would be. Um, and you scoop the fantastic this great prize for literary non fiction. Um, I won't do the whole was it a surprise to win question, <laughs> but um, did, did, the, did it change anything? Did it, I mean,
3: yeah, what, it what? did. I think the Rayleigh Gifford can be a life changing prize. I think. Uh, I think probably as we were discussing earlier, I, I think some people perhaps find it slightly more life-changing because for a lot of people, winning the Bailey Gifford, what it does is it suddenly means that your book sells into multiple countries of translations. <laughs> Europe has been very resistant <laughs> to a poem about an, uh, about an English dead poet, but it good absolutely... Good exactly, give it <laughs> a few years, we're going to work on France. Um, uh, he hated France. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think uh, the main thing, the most obvious and flat-footed thing it did, was transform my sales. Um, it made more people willing to read a book about somebody about whom they may well not have known very much. Um, and I think the great generosity of the Bailey Gifford Prize is that it does go to a huge variety of books. I never expected to win, but it was a a shift. And the other thing, of course, that it changes is I've been writing children's books for—I'm 36. I started at 21, so about 15 years—and um, you get treated very differently if you say you write children's fiction. People sometimes look at you a little bit like you've just said a simpleton, yes. exactly like you've said you are a child, or like you've said that you make you know matchbox furniture out of you know plywood for the elves. You know, it—it can be—it it, it can be. It can be uh, it can be a strange job, but the minute you win the Bailey Gifford, people treat you like an adult, and, and that has been a great joy.
1: Wasn't that brilliant? Please, thanks, Catherine Rundell. So every year, uh, an independent panel of judges selected afresh for every year uh, meet and start with about 300 books, and then they arrive at a long list of 13 books, which you can see here behind me, and then they get it down to six. And those six are in contention for a prize that will be awarded on the 16th of November. Uh, The winner receives a cheque for £50,000, and the runners-up receive £5,000 each. And very excitingly, this is a scoop, our chair for this year, Frederick Suderman, is going to tell us who's in contention. Well,
2: I'm actually going to uh, co-opt my, <laughs> my fellow <laughs> guest here on the stage, because I think we should do it together. So I think so you grab- this is like okay. the mystery. And as you, you write a lot about the magic and yeah. mystery of Dunn's poems. So let's in poet. There you go. <laughs> now, I'm going to have to read all of these out to you. So I'm going to stand up and do it. So in alphabetical order, so this is no indication of anything um, that should be interpreted. Uh, We have on our shortlist, I'm very pleased to announce, Hannah Barnes, author of Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's Gender Service for Children, published by Swift Press. Tanya Branigan, Red Memory, Living, Remembering, and Forgetting, China's Cultural Revolution, published by Faber and Faber. Christopher Clarke, Revolutionary Spring, Fighting for a New World, 1848 to 1849, Alan Lane, Jeremy Eichler, Times Echo, The Second World War, The Holocaust and the Music of Remembrance, another Faber book. Jennifer Homan's, Mr. B, George Balanchine's Twentieth Century, published by Granter. And finally, John Valent, uh, his book Fireweather, A True Story from a Hotter World, published by Scepter. So that's our short list. Please give it a of one. One
3: and to... the
2: home. Needless to say, they are all really good books. They're very, there's a lot of, uh, there's a huge range there. They're very different. I can't, you know, you'll have to read up about them. They cover everything from, you know, the the grotesque institutional failure within one of our biggest institutions in the country, within the NHS, through uh, understanding modern day China by having to understand the enduring legacy of the Cultural Revolution. a, a, a brilliant historic study, a uh, work of history about one of Europe's great forgotten revolutions, 1848, told in a very original, imaginative and, and deeply engaging way. It sort of pulls you in. The Times Echo book is is also looking at how episodes of extreme horror and trauma that happened in the 20th century, whether it's the Holocaust, the Stalin's purges, the bombing of Coventry, were captured by four of the great composers of the last century, and and how music is the way, Touched on some of the themes you were going about, it's through the music you can almost re-experience the emotion that people felt at the time, or that the composers were trying to capture. Mr. Balanchine is an extraordinary story of uh, a ballet choreographer who fled from Russia, revolutionary Russia, goes to America, and essentially totally creates this sort of whole world for America. He sort of informs the, the modern in America. And fire weather, it, it's, an, it's a story of our moment in terms of climate change and the damage we did. It, it, it's the specific story of a, an absolute catastrophe up in the northern part of Canada where a fire breaks out in the area where they're trying to get oil out of sands. So it's quite, a, it's quite an arduous business. And, just the, 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 uh, what unfolds after that in terms of human, environmental, economic and natural disaster. So it covers a whole range of things. I'd say if there were some things that they all have, uh, well, if I'd say there's one thing they all have, they're all really well written and they can have the ability to surprise and inspire, but also to challenge you. And I think that's very important with a prize like this. I should also say one last thing for... They were drawn from what I would say is a wonderfully long list. And I would also commend all of those books to you as well. They are great books. It's a horrible business. It's it, it Having to, you know, as we said in our, one of our meetings, you know, you do have to drown a few kittens. There are books that we, I would dearly <laughs> love to have seen from there to there, but it, he makes up the rules, so I just have to follow what he says. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you all so much, Nicole.
0: And that's it for today. We'd again like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued generous support of this podcast. The winner from that extraordinary list of six will be announced at an award ceremony at the Science Museum, generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation on Thursday, the 16th of November. This winner announcement will also be live-streamed across the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction social channels, before the winner announcement, however, there will be six special shortlist podcasts where Prize Director Toby Mundy or I will be individually speaking to the six authors about their books and how they feel about being part of this year's Prize cycle. If you're interested in finding out more about the shortlist, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and TikTok at BG Prize. Thanks for listening. Until the next time. Bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.